At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 27, the first Indo-Pakistan war. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. So before we begin this episode, I would highly recommend listening to episode 26, if you haven't already done so, about the origins of India and Pakistan and their early role in the Cold War. It provides a lot of the background details to this episode. In this episode, we're going to examine the origins of the first Indo-Pakistan war the Cold War's impact on the conflict, and its influence on the wider Cold War. As always, I want to apologize for any mispronunciations. Also, I'm going to be posting some pictures on the website to go with the episode, so feel free to check those out at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com. One word. As we saw in our last episode, India and Pakistan came into existence in August 1947. But in just under five months, India and Pakistan found themselves at war with each other. How did this happen so quickly, and why are these nations to this day so willing to go to war for this remote and mountainous territory? Many have argued that the war between India and Pakistan is a continuation of a primordial struggle that stretches back thousands of years between Hindus and Muslims. According to this theory, these two religions inform the prospective state-building projects of India which was Hindu, and Pakistan, which was Muslim, which gave modern form to this ancient struggle. This is, however, a very simple and inaccurate understanding of the struggle. Although religious, religious differences played a major role in the conflict, it was not the sole reason. It's true that Pakistan is a nation formed on religious identity. Mohammed Jannah, through his rhetoric and political skill, had forged a mythical construct by which the Muslims of South Asia constituted a distinctive nation. He argued that only an independent Muslim-majority state could provide true safety and opportunity to the Muslims of this Indian subcontinent. This argument, though, ignores the fact that relations between Islam and Hinduism weren't always confrontational. Akbar the Great of the Mughal Empire in the 16th century ruled over a religiously tolerant and cosmopolitan empire, having a Muslim, Hindu, and Christian wife debunking the idea that this is somehow a conflict that stretches back thousands of years. Moreover, India's early rulers, the Congress Party, as we saw in the last episode, were secular. They wanted to build a multiracial and religiously diverse nation held together by a common belief in civil liberties, illegalitarianism, and democracy, working hard to protect the rights of ethnic and religious minorities. To this day, millions of loyal Indian Muslims still live in India, so it would be unfair and inaccurate to label India as a Hindu nation. Another argument is that the conflict and Pakistan's subsequent drift towards military dictatorship is a fault of the United States. 
This argument contends that the U.S. military alliance and military support in the 1950s led towards the militarization of Pakistani society and, and its bad relations with India. Therefore, according to this theory, you could hold the United States responsible for fueling the Indo-Pakistan conflict. However, if one examines the historical record, it quickly disproves this theory as it puts the cart before the horse. For one, the first Indo-Pakistan War took place in 1947, long before the U.S. military alliance with Pakistan in 1954. As we have seen in 1947, America was far more focused on Europe with the Marshall Plan, the Civil War in Greece, and the Italian elections. It also overlooks the fact that the United States supplied India with military and economic assistance as well. Finally, following the outbreak of the Second Indo-Pakistan War in 1965, the United States cut all military assistance to both India and Pakistan. Others have argued that the conflict between India and Pakistan is rooted in their colonial experience and partition. There is some truth to this. It's true that the British used ethnic and religious differences to rule India. This made the British natural referees, and they often played one side off against another to secure the rule of the subcontinent. However, religious conflict in India existed long before the British arrived. Muslim rulers like the great-grandson of Akbar, Aranzeb, who showed, showed scant regard for his Hindu subjects, destroyed Hindu temples, and sought to repress them. Nevertheless, there was an important British imperial legacy that did inform and shape the conflict, that, and that was modernity. The leadership of the Congress Party and the Muslim League were brought up in the Western tradition. The majority of them had attended Western universities, like Nehru, who had attended Cambridge, and Jinnah himself, who was an English-trained lawyer. The first war between India and Pakistan, like the wider Cold War itself, was a clash of modernity. The Muslim League and Congress had fundamentally different views about how to compose a modern state in the wake of India's independence. Jinnah and the Muslim League saw Hindus and, and Muslims as two distinct peoples and cultures, akin to how Max Weber had argued that religion shaped culture and traditions, and thus the economy and the overall society. Therefore, you couldn't have peoples of two or three different religions form a society, as they had different cultures, which would naturally lead to conflict. However, beyond Jenna's vision of separating the Indian people, it's not clear what type of state Jenna wanted to create. On the one hand, he didn't want a secular state, as Congress proposed, but on the other hand, he didn't want a theocracy. He sought to relegate religious belief to the home. His successors, however, chose to build a Muslim identity state for purposes of state construction. What it means to be an Islamic state and not a theocracy remains a heated debate in Pakistan to this day. India and Congress, in contrast, as we pointed out earlier, strive to forge a secular state built on the principles of the English Enlightenment from thinkers like Bentham, Hume, and Locke. The very existence of this state called into question Jenna's assumptions and Pakistan as a state. Any success of secular India would show that, the sta that states didn't have to be formulated on the basis of ethnic identity and religion. A secular state based on civic nationalism is antithetical to those who believe in a primordial conception of identity as the only viable basis for state building. On the other hand, Pakistan represented the great failure of the Indian Congress Party and the fear that the British colonial authorities were right. Religious and ethnic diverse 
ethnically diverse peoples can't live together in a cooperative society, and in the months after independence, as religious and ethnic violence swept across India, it looked as though they may have had a point. The match that set this ideological disagreement into a war was Pakistan and India's claim over Kashmir. Pakistan sought to incorporate Jama and Kashmir into Pakistan as the majority of its people were Muslim. India, in contrast, was committed to retaining these Muslim-majority states as it sought to demonstrate that all communities, regardless of their religious beliefs, could thrive under a secular Indian rule. Kashmir was a princely state before independence. As we explained last episode, the princely states were vassals of the British Empire. Their reigns were guaranteed by the British crown, and they managed their own affairs for the most part, but in exchange they recognized their servitude to the crown, and the British ran their foreign affairs. Kashmir had come into being in March 1846 after the First Sikh War. The British had conquered the territory but lacked the resources to administer it, so they sold the kingdom to Gulag Sa the, uh, the Raj of Juma for 750,000 rubies. Sai was a Hindu, whereas the majority of the people in Kashmir were Muslims. But Kashmir had a religiously mixed community for centuries and remained peaceful after Sai took control. With the end of the British rule in India, their, vas- their vassalage lapsed and they could either join India, Pakistan, or work out a basis for independence between the two. Maharaja Haris Sai refused to join either India or Pakistan. He did, however, sign a standstill agreement in the weeks after independence with Pakistan to carry on basic commercial transactions. It didn't sign one with India, as most of their trade flowed through Pakistan. He soon came under pressure, though, from both India and Pakistan to join their respective states. Most members of both the Muslim League and the Congress Party assumed that ultimately, Kashmir would join Pakistan given its predominantly Muslim population and the fact that its lines of trade and communication ran through Pakistan. There were only three roads running in and out of Kashmir, two of them into Pakistan and one into India. Moreover, the Indian road was more of a trail and was snowed in five months out of the year. Sections of the Muslim intelligentsia and clergy in Kashmir supported the Muslim League Yet Kashmir's accession to Pakistan wasn't a foregone conclusion. The Hindus and Buddhists favored India, not wishing to join a Muslim state. More importantly, it's not clear that the vast majority of Muslim farmers were open to join Pakistan. Most of Pakistan's elite were landed gentry, and the prospects of land reform under Pakistan's rule were dim. On the other hand, there were good prospects for land reform under Indian rule. Therefore, most of the poor Muslim farmers had a brighter economic future under Indian rule. The Congress Party also had a strong support in the person of Sikh Muhammad Abdullah, the founder of the mass-based political party, Al-Juma and Kashmir Muslim Conference. In the late 1930s, he came under the influence of Nehru and eventually accepted Hindus and Buddhists as members of the party. The party was committed to land reform, redistributive justice, and were staunch opponents to the Maharaja's rule. However, again, it's not clear how many people understood this or would have been willing to vote uh, against their own economic prospects for, for cultural and religious affinity. Nehru, whose ancestral homeland was Kashmir, held out hope that Kashmir would choose to join India. 
This personal connection also helped play a crucial role in the conflict. To Nehru, Kashmir was a powerful symbol that India was not a Hindu state and that India was a state for all peoples and religions. Both the British and the Pakistanis assumed that the Maharaja would come to his senses and join Pakistan. But he was showing little sign of joining Pakistan and was quickly losing his grip on the country. He was under considerable pressure from his wife and his brother to join India. Torn between his family and the British who advised him to join Pakistan, he visited his astrologer, who told him to hold out for independence. He stocked his forces recruiting from his ethnic Dorga people. Noting the changing political landscape, his Muslim troops had began to desert. In response, during September and October 1947, the Maharaja began a campaign of sustained harassment, arson, violence, and genocide against his Muslim subjects. The numbers of deaths, unfortunately, are unknown to us as we have no known records. The Maharaja attempted to create an uninhabited buffer zone between him and Pakistan. Muslims were pushed into Pakistan or killed. Hindus were sent the other way, deeper into Kashmir. Later, India denied any knowledge of what was taking place. However, some have claimed that this was because they were secretly supplying the Maharaja's forces with weapons. Thousands of refugees started to pour into northern Pakistan with horrifying stories of atrocities. The area these people fled to was Silkat, uh, was known for its fearsome Islamic tribesmen, the Panthan. They had already been infuriated by the stories of violence that had been, perpet been per perpetrated against m Muslims fleeing the Punjab by Sikhs and Hindus. Now they swept down from the mountains and massed on the Kashmiri border, preparing to invade. Meanwhile, Pakistani officials on the border stopped the supply of gas, sugar, and other goods into Kashmir. By October the 20th, war seemed inevitable. In a preemptive strike, the Maharaja's troops crossed the border into Pakistan and attacked four villages with mortars and small arms, which resulted in an estimated 1,750 casualties. In response, the next night, 2,000 tribesmen crossed the border into Kashmir. The tribesmen sacked towns and villages on their way recruiting local Muslim troops from the Kashmiri army. At Barbula, the Maharaja's army held the tribesmen for two days, but when they finally took the town and the chaos that followed, they put everyone to the sword, Muslims and Hindus alike. At this point, the tribesmen began arguing amongst themselves. This gave the Maharaja time to escape the capital, to Singar, to Juma, leaving no administration in the capital. Public order collapsed. In Delhi, pressure to send in troops grew. Mountbatten insisted that troops could not be sent in unless Kashmir formally acceded to India. If you recall from last episode, Mountbatten had stayed on as Governor General of India after his term as Viceroy ended as India had become a dominion. The Maharaja soon wrote to Mountbatten, asking to accede to India. However, it's not clear if Indian troops began to arrive before the Maharaja formally ex acceded to India. The original copy of the accession has disappeared from the Indian archives. Nonetheless, many question the legitimacy of the Maharaja to even make such a decision. He wasn't even in control of his capital at this point and had been involved in genocide against his own subjects. This was in many ways hypocritical of Nehru. 
He had for years argued against the legitimacy of the princely states and, as we saw last episode, compelled the leader of Hyderabad to join India as the majority of his subjects were Hindus, despite the fact that he was a Muslim leader. The British High Commissioner in Pakistan telegraphed London that India should not accept Kashmir's accession without a plebiscite, but it was too late. Nehru and Mountbatten had accepted the accession of, and Indian troops were flown into Kashmir. At this point, the tribes had captured about a third of Kashmir. If India was to hold Kashmir, they would need to move fast before winter made the region impossible to defend. Therefore, India had to move its forces into Kashmir as quickly as possible. Hence, India flew members of its first Sikh battalion into Sangar, and these troops quickly secured the capital. Mountbatten had advised against the use of Sikh troops for this mission. The Sikhs and Muslims had a complex and tragic history, and violence between the groups had flared after independence. He pointed out that in some areas it would be impossible for the Sikhs to tell the difference between innocent local Muslims and tribesmen, and that it was likely that the army would make mistakes, which would only worsen the situation. Instead, Mountbatten urged the Indians to work with the Pakistanis to find a peaceful solution. Jena took offense to these moves and ordered Pakistani forces to defend Kashmir against India, but was forced to cancel his order when British officers of the Pakistani army refused to follow orders. As a result of independence, the army of the Raj had been split between Pakistan and India, and because of this, the Pakistani army faced a critical shortage of officers and had to hire former British officers. The situation was worsened by the fact that Nehru and Jena hated each other. Both men suspected the worst of each other. Nehru was convinced that Jena had organized the Pathan tribal uh, attacks on the Kashmir, despite having no evidence. Granted, the Pakistanis had kept supply routes to the tribes open, but it's doubtful they could have stopped the tribes even if they wanted. They were a new state, and most of their military equipment was still sitting in India, as the British had divided the equipment after independence. Beyond that, to attack the tribesmen would have started a civil war, and they were, they were ill-prepared to fight. Similarly, Nehru had failed to inform Jena that the Maharaja had asked him for help and that he was sending troops. As a result, Jena and the Pakistanis became convinced that Nehru meant to take Kashmir all, all, all along by force. During the fall and early winter of 1947, pitched battles continued in Kashmir between the Indians and the Pakistanis and their tribesmen allies, with both sides suffering heavy casualties. The principal Indian unit engaged in the battle was the 161st Infantry Brigade, which had managed to halt the advance of the Pakistanis. A portion of the Maharaja's forces were still intact as well. At this point, Pakistani forces consisted of units of the Pakistani Regular Army, disguised as tribesmen, and paramilitary Muslim League National Guard, and tribesmen from the northwest frontier, including Pathan, Hazar, and Afridi. Pakistani forces were at a disadvantage, though, as mentioned earlier, they lacked trained officers, and they also had few bases and ordnance factories. However, the Pakistanis felt they had an edge over the Indians, in the fact that their forces were homogeneous, whereas Indian forces were composed of different religious and ethnic groups. They believed that this ethnic and religious diversity would weaken their forces' spirit, allowing the Pakistani troops to prevail. 
Ultimately, Pakistani leadership grossly underestimated Indian military prowess and the Indian response to military challenges. The Indian Army had seen extensive combat in both Burma against the Japanese and in Italy against the Italians and the Germans, and was a battle-hardened professional force to be reckoned with. The Pakistanis now launched a three-pronged attack against the road into Sangar and attempted to cut its lines of communications by taking the town of Uri. The Maharaja's forces again managed to hold the Pakistanis for two days before the town fell. After capturing Uri, they took the another small town, Mura, which supplied electricity to the capital and cut the power. And over the next week, Pakistani forces attempted to take the capital, making it within a few miles of the airport. Mount Benton attempted to resolve the situation by organizing a meeting in Lahore between Nehru and Jinnah. The talks were set for November the 1st, but on the afternoon of October the 31st, the Pakistani government issued a statement accusing the Maharaja and Abdullah of conspiring with the Indian government while refusing the Pakistani overtures of friendship. Moreover, it claimed that the Indians had used the incursion of tribesmen to justify a pre-planned invasion of Kashmir, virtually scuttling the talks. In Kashmir, fighting quickly spread to other parts of the region. On November the 5th, 120 trucks arrived in Juma, and the local Muslims were told that they would be taken to Pakistan. Instead, they were taken deeper into Juma. The convoy was halted, and the people were ordered out of the trucks. And then the people were gunned down with machine guns or hacked to death with blades. A few hundred managed to escape by hiding in the fields or canals. The rest were killed. A few days later, Indian forces launched a counterattack to save the besieged capital. Using armored cars and World War II Stuart tanks with infantry support, they caught the Pakistani forces off guard, pushing back the Pakistanis, recapturing Mura and restoring the electricity to the capital. By December, the temperature was dropping. Supplies to the Indian Army were already running short, and in a couple of weeks, India's only road into Kashmir would be icebound. Indian forces also lacked high-altitude equipment, and many of the troops had no experience in dealing with the extremely cold temperatures. Pakistani forces used this to their advantage and counterattacked the Indians, causing them to lose ground. But Pakistan was losing on the strategic front. Mountbatten had been placed in charge of dividing the Raj's assets after independence, and in December, he decided Pakistan was to get 750 million rupees of the Raj's sterling assets, slightly less than one-fifth, and only a one-third of its military stocks, but still received 17.5% of the Raj's liabilities. The bigger issue is despite having ownership of these resources, they were physically located in India outside of their control. India quickly ordered a freeze on 550 million of Pakistan's rupees on grounds that it would be used to invade Indian territory, virtually bankrupting Pakistan. Under these circumstances, as we saw in our last episode, Jenna reached out to both the Americans and British and offered Pakistan, a Muslim country, as a bulwark against the spread of communism in the region in contrast to the self-proclaimed socialist Nehru. The Americans initially rebuffed the Pakistanis, directing them to reach out to the British, but in time, elements within the U.S. were starting to realize that Pakistan would be their natural ally in the region and not India. I want to take a quick break here and thank you for listening to the podcast and for sharing us with your friends and family. Me and my colleague, David Forrest, spend a great deal of time on this podcast. 
The average episode takes between 10 to 15 hours and costs 10 to $20, not including hosting fees for the podcast or the website. Nevertheless, you guys represent the heart of this show. I am a historian of the old school Leopold von Rankin method. My goal, as challenging as it is, is to try and give you an understanding of what happened and how it happened to the best of my ability. Although I might from time to time give different perspectives or play devil's advocate, I want you to listeners to make your own ethical and political conclusions about what happened. I do not and will not share my political, ideological, or religious beliefs on this show. As a school of history, we are a dying breed. Most historians these days come from different schools of thought that promote a certain set of ideological and political beliefs before they examine a subject. It's not to say that they are bad historians or their work is flawed. It's a comment on the lack of historical perspectives available today. If you enjoy this historical approach that I have taken in this show, please consider donating through our website through Patreon, $5 a month or whatever amount you feel is appropriate. Your donation will help keep this genre of history alive. Thank you, and now let's get back to the show. In the spring of 1948, the Indians counterattacked, but elements of the Pakistani regular army were now openly participating. Pakistan brought in artillery to support the tribesmen, and later that year, Pakistani ground forces helped make important territorial gains. The Pakistanis in all deployed two field artillery regiments, a parachute brigade, and a medium artillery battery. Moreover, these troops threatened the logistical supply lines of the Indian troops fighting in Kashmir. Mountbatten, at this point, all but begged Nehru to take the issue to the UN, but Nehru was reluctant after witnessing how they had handled the Palestinian issue only a few weeks before. Nehru did not see how a UN peacekeeping force or a UN-observed plebiscite was practical until a peace could be agreed to. To his horror, Nehru proposed crossing over the border into, into Pakistan to destroy the supply bases of the tribesmen in the Pakistani army. The Indian Air Force had already dropped a half a ton of bombs on tribes along the 500-mile border of Kashmir and Pakistan. Mountbatten pointed out that this would lead to a protracted guerrilla war with the tribesmen, which would wear down the army and eat up India's limited resources and would more than likely expand the war between India and Pakistan. Atli, with the urging of Mountbatten, telegrammed Nehru, warning him against invading Pakistan even if he thought it constituted self-defense. India's political leadership also came to the conclusion that the war would drag on unless Pakistan ended its support for the insurgents. To achieve this, they would have to re would have required a full-scale war between Pakistan and India, and India had neither the military resources, the political capital, nor the popular support to conquer Pakistan. At this point, Congress was struggling to maintain control of the country itself, let alone conquer Pakistan. A half a million textile and industrial workers went on strike. A riot also broke out led by communist students in Bombay, not to mention all the ethnic and religious violence we spoke about last episode. Nehru, under considerable pressure domestically and internationally, moved the issue to the Security Council at the UN. Nehru suggested a partition of the state along the ceasefire line. This was a calculated move by the Indians. They knew that the territory controlled by Pakistan had little popular support for India and would be difficult to administer. 
India complained to the United Nations Security Council that Pakistani tribesmen and Pakistani regular forces had attacked Kashmir. Accordingly, they called on the UN to condemn Pakistan as an aggressor nation. Naturally, Pakistan contested these claims, saying that they did not help the tribesmen, arguing that India was responsible for carrying out genocide against the Muslim people of Kashmir. Moreover, Pakistan questioned the legitimacy of Kashmir's accession to India. In response, the Security Council established a three-member commission to investigate the situation and mediate the dispute. After hearing the, co the commission's findings, the UN passed a resolution on April 21, 1948, that called on the government of Pakistan to withdraw its forces and the tribesmen from Kashmir. Simultaneously, it called on in India to withdraw Indian forces, only leaving a small force to maintain law and order. After this, a free and fair plebiscite would be held to determine the wishes of the Kashmiri people to join either India or Pakistan. Following consultations with both India and Pakistan, an updated resolution was passed in August calling on both sides to agree to a ceasefire in 40 days, withdraw their forces, at which time local authorities would administer Kashmir under UN supervision. Finally, both sides would agree to the results of a plebiscite, no matter what the outcome. All of this, of course, never occurred. India demanded that Pakistani forces leave before any plebiscite take place, whereas Pakistan argued for a plebiscite and then a withdrawal of forces. The UN appointed the head of the Security Council, General A.G.L. McNaughton of Canada, to reach a settlement, but he failed to reach a compromise between India and Pakistan. The Security Council returned to the issue in 1951, passing another resolution calling for international arbitration to settle the dispute. In the event that the demilitarization of Kashmir did not take place within three months, Pakistan accepted the the resolution, but India rejected it on the grounds that it would not consign the fate of millions of its citizens to the vagaries of an international body like the United Nations. In 1950 and 1951, India and Pakistan teetered on the brink of war over the Kashmir issue once again. In 1950, riots in eastern Pakistan, or current-day Bangladesh, drove thousands of Hindu refugees into India and India and Pakistan feared that these renewed religious tensions might cause another war. The new Pakistani Prime Minister, Ali Khan, met with Nehru in 1950, and they signed a pact pledging to protect religious minorities in their respective countries. However, little changed in Pakistan, and thousands of Hindus continued to flee India. In an attempt to show Ali Khan that India was serious, Nehru massed troops along its border with Pakistan. This crisis dissipated after an exchange of nasty letters, where each side accused the other of having started a crisis. In 1953, a new Pakistani prime minister, Ali Borga, uh, met Nehru at a Commonwealth summit and agreed to, to a second meeting about Kashmir and New Delhi. Nehru and Borga agreed to not resolve the issue by use of force and that a plebiscite would be held and administered by the UN. They also agreed that the initial UN-appointed plebiscite administrator, Admiral Nimitz from the United States, would be replaced by a famous figure from a small Asian nation. India wanted Nimitz removed because they saw him and the U.S. as pro-Pakistani. In late 1954, the U.S. had signed a defensive agreement with Pakistan in which the U.S. agreed to provide military support. 
Eisenhower promised that the weapons supplied to Pakistan wouldn't be used against India, but Nehru didn't buy it, although it should be noted the U.S. also offered to sell weapons to India. The emergence of this U.S.-Pakistani alliance made Nehru hostile to any plebiscite in Kashmir. India viewed the U.S. and the U.K. as pro-Pakistani and the U.N. as Pakistan had become one of their lackeys in the Cold War. Nevertheless, despite reneging on the plebiscite, Nehru offered a new no-war pact to Borga. However, Borga quickly rejected this on grounds that the pact was worthless unless it was coupled with some measure to end the dispute. In 1955, talks resumed, but were ended in 1956 when Nehru again suggested partitioning Kashmir along the ceasefire line, which Pakistan flatly rejected. In 1957, Pakistan moved the question back to the Security Council. Pakistan made this move because at this moment, many Western powers were angry with India's pro-Nasser stand in 1956 and its refusal to condemn the Soviet invasion of Hungary. The Soviets came to India's aid, though, and vetoed the resolution as out of order. If you're not familiar at the Security Council, permanent members such as the U.S. or Russia can veto resolutions. Under Stalin, the Soviet Union made little of Indian independence and saw the Indian government as a lackey of the British, although they did establish diplomatic relations. It primarily supported and advised the Communist Party in India. American officials were more favorable, but India took a cautious view of the United States and preferred to deal with the British when they could. Fear of American economic imperialism, fueled in part by American NGOs like the Ford and Rockefeller Foundations, at which were seen as imperialist agents. India was also cautious of American free trade, which it believed had enslaved India to Britain in the 19th century. America's racial problems were also another concern for India, especially the policies of segregation in the South, which echoed its experience under colonial rule. Moreover, American and Indian leadership did not get along well. The State Department and Truman found Nehru to be hard, a hard man to work with, when Nehru visited the United States in 1949, he considered Truman and Secretary of State Dean Atkinson mediocre men. This judgment soon reached Truman via the CIA, who had a source in his Nehru staff. As the 1950s progressed, India's embrace of non-alignment and India's view of itself as a major world power often irritated the Americans, especially when they tried to mediate the Korean War. For these reasons, the U.S. found itself a closer, in a closer relationship with Pakistan. Pakistan was openly anti-communist and was a buffer to communist expansion in the Middle East and Central Asia. By 1955, Pakistan was a member of both CENTO, the Central Treaty Organization, and CETO, the South East Asian Treaty Organization. Basically, these were regional U.S.-led alliances like NATO. Pakistan played a role in American defense planning in both the Middle East and Asia. Moreover, Pakistan also became an important CIA base for U-2 spy planes to fly over the Soviet Union. These formal alliances were underwritten by a large and long-term American commitment to Pakistan in military and economic aid, which continued into the 21st century. The politicization of the Kashmiri issue at the UN and its new place in the wider Cold War struggle undermined India's faith in multilateral diplomacy and the United Nations. For Pakistani leadership, Kashmir remained one of its top priorities. 
Pakistan's identity as the homeland of South Asian Muslims made it a moral imperative to include all of Kashmir in its domain. But it was also a strategic imperative. Pakistan could better defend itself with Kashmir. Committed to the pursuit of these ends, the leadership remained fundamentally unreconciled to the status quo and sought to exploit any opportunities to bring diplomatic and military pressure on India to cede the region. The conflict also helped to shape Pakistan into a militarized state. These security concerns and Pakistan's structural weaknesses necessitated the growth of a security state in which its new leaders distrusted the people and the military assumed an ever-growing role in running the state and maintaining national cohesion. Pakistani leadership came to believe, after Pakistan's clashes with India in 1947, that its very existence was linked to a well-trained, well-equipped, and well-led army, and that to achieve this, it was vital to secure American and, to a lesser extent, British friendship, since at this point the Soviet Union was not a major player in South Asia, leading it to join the Baghdad Pact, Cento, and Cito. India remained equally determined to hold Kashmir, to demonstrate its commitment to secularism. It ignored Pakistan's demands and steadily strengthened its hold over the region. These two antithetical strategies would place these states on the path to another clash in 1965, which we will be covering in a future episode. Today, the struggle for Kashmir is very different from how it began. Starting in the 1980s, despite the absence of any constitutional changes, India's secularism has started to go into decline. The BJP, a Hindu nationalist party, was formed and became one of India's major political parties in the 1990s. Even Congress moved away from its staunch support for secularism. For example, during the election of 1980, Idira Gandhi made veiled comments about Muslims, as did her son and political successor, Ravji Gandhi. Consequently, for Pakistan after 1971 and India after the mid-1980s, their commitments to different modern visions of state construction declined dramatically. Thereafter, both sides fought to retain control of Kashmir for Westphalian or real politic reasons as states don't willingly cede territory they deem to be their own. Although, in some ways, India still fears losing Kashmir could create a domino effect in which other disaffected minorities would demand to leave the Indian Union. I want to thank you for listening to episode 27, The First Indo-Pakistan War. Join us next time for our next episode, May the 15th, as we explore the Malaya emergency as the British battled communist insurgents in Malaya for much of the early Cold War. This should be an exciting episode as we explore this forgotten victory of democratic forces in Southeast Asia, as often overshadowed by the French and American defeats in the region. If you like this episode, or any episode in particular, feel free to share it on social media and tell your friends about us. If you don't have a lot of friends in the history, help us out by giving us a positive review on iTunes or whatever platform you use. If you want to help support the show financially, please donate through Patreon on the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com. One word. Any contribution is appreciated. Well there, don't forget to check out our pictures for this episode. Shoot us an email if you have any questions or comments, and if you have a moment, please fill out our survey there so that you can help us to bring you a better show.
At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.